Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9. We'll finish Mark's ninth chapter today by looking at the radical demands of discipleship. I was telling my, my wife, uh, I've met so many uh, guests and first-time visitors, that I did say, what a day for someone who's a guest to come and hear what Jesus is saying. And yet I believe that all of us are here on the right day and the right time by God's ordering providence. But this is a very full-stop moment in the ministry of our Lord telling us what he expects from our following him and discipleship. Let me read this text for us, and then we'll dive in to study together. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42 to the end of the chapter. Mark 9, 42, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. As we finish chapter 9, Mark has an accelerated pace in following the Lord from his calling of the, of the 12 in chapter 1 to his death and resurrection in the 16th chapter. This is the last lesson that Mark leaves us with in Capernaum. Now that's about 100 miles north of Judea. Think of Judea as a county and Jerusalem as the city inside that county. Look up at verse um, uh, 33. They came to to Capernaum, his hometown. Probably in the house where Peter lived, that's where he stayed for the most part of these three and a half years in his final phase of his ministry. Then look over at chapter 10, verse one. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered. So this is it. He's about to leave his hometown. This is the final lesson to the disciples before he is drawn by God's own dear providence to the south where he's going to be accused, belittled, and executed only to rise from the dead the third day. You know, with the rise of militant Islam, There's an adjective I think that's been hijacked and thus its meaning changed, but it's a good word that I wish we could reclaim. The term is the word radical. The headlines have well associated the term radical with radical Islamic terrorism. When we hear that and we are right to be critical of it. This negative understanding of a religious radical is indeed correct. It's fitting, however, the term radical should not be completely abandoned to wicked extremists. I looked up the word radical in my thesaurus. I love thesauruses. Thesauruses, you look up a word and it gives you multiple words that are synonyms that mean the same thing for it. So let me read you the thesaurus entrance for for the word radical. Ready? Thoroughgoing. Thorough. Complete, total, 
entire, absolute. Radical also means utter, comprehensive, exhaustive, sweeping, far-reaching, wide-ranging, extensive, profound, drastic, severe, major, stringent, and rigorous. If you take those words and the right understanding in the dictionary sense of the word radical, in the passage before us, Jesus calls those who follow him, those who claim him as their Lord and Savior, disciples current with him then, disciples in the building now, he calls us to be radical in our following of him. We can say it this way. What the world calls extreme devotion in a religious sense, Jesus identifies as normal Christianity. We come to this section, this paragraph, this last lesson in the Galilee area before Jesus drops down the Jordan River Valley down to Judea and marches up to Jerusalem for his execution. And he's exacting out of his disciples their final commitment. This, in a sense, is their final lesson that Mark is going to record for us. Up in Galilee, before they go down to Jerusalem and they see how wonderfully, graciously, gloriously radical Jesus is in his love for them and in his love for you and me. The same commitment and allegiance are expected from you and me as Jesus enacts on these disciples here in Capernaum. Very simply, Jesus outlines the radical demands of following him, the radical demands of discipleship. And what we look at as radical and as extreme, Jesus just says, this is normal biblical Christianity. Now, as we consider the Lord's words here, we're gonna recognize that what he calls us to is not for the faint of heart. We say over and over around here at Mission Road that Jesus has no desire to be a part of your life. He intends to be the point of your life. And few texts outline that sentiment more than what's before us. Let's look at it together. And as we do, let's just kind of flow through what Jesus calls us to be. And he calls believers to a radical commitment in three realms. Three realms. Um, specifically, it's with three kinds of relationships, with others, with ourselves, and with, with the world. We're going to look first of all, number one, though, at others. Jesus calls believers to a radical commitment in this first realm, number one, others. In other words, the radical consequence for endangering another's faith. This is profound. I got to tell you, this is frightening. This is jaw-dropping, this is stunning, this is arresting. This is a, a moment where you stop and say, oh dear God, have I ever done this? Verse 42, the Lord says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, the word stumble is going to be repeated throughout this passage. It would be better for him, the one who had caused a little one who believes to stumble, if a heavy millstone, which could have been somewhere between 400 and 1,200 pounds, tied around his neck and thrown into the ocean, drowned, killed. As I said, the connecting word in this paragraph is the word stumble, causing another to stumble or looking at ourselves and what we're allowing our own passions and desires to trip us up in and to make us stumble. But Jesus' words in 42 really are, are consequential from the lesson of verse 41, but stated negatively. Jesus is not speaking directly about children here, by the way. He's speaking about little ones, weaker ones, immature ones. How do we know that? Because it says in the text, who believe. Those who believe. They are old enough to have an expressed commitment and faith in a discipleship relationship with Christ. But look back up for just a moment at verse 41. Let's take these two together. 
who gives you a cup of water because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. There's a good influence. There's a good response to those who love Christ, who are followers. You give them water. You take care of them. They're your brother. They're your sister. You're hospitable. You're encouraging. If a believer does even a small act of kindness, it will be noticed by the Lord and rewarded. What a grace. But equally true is that if a disciple or a Christian puts even the tiniest stone or obstacle in the path of another follower of the Lord, it will bring judgment. Jesus is saying, listen, friends, if you claim to be a follower of mine, if you claim to be a Christian, your words and your actions and your example carry enormous weight. So much so, if you lead a young, immature believer, these who believe, the least of these who believe, if you lead a young, immature believer to stumble in what they believe and how they act and how they understand the gospel and what they understand about obedience, if you cause them to stumble, it would have been better if you'd been drowned. Those are the words of Jesus. The focus here is our theology and our lives, what we teach as true and what we demonstrate as true by how we live. It's a significant gut check on our own growth and influence. I mean, think at the end of this text. It would be better if you've been drowned. You know, there are a few more horrific thoughts than, than drowning. Uh, it was the way the Gentiles would, would uh, commit many of their executions. They would take someone out in a lake, out in the ocean, out in a pond. They would tie a millstone around their neck, bind their hands and feet, throw them over, and let them drown. Jesus says that would be better for you to be drowned than to cause another believer to stumble. What does it mean to stumble? It means two things. To think wrongly, theologically, to think wrongly about God, about the word, about the gospel, thinking wrong or doing wrong. In other words, they follow our example and end up violating their own conscience. This is exactly what Paul was talking about in the use of Christian liberties in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. In other words, I have freedom to do things, but I don't do them all because they don't bring profit to those around me. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. That's the point. The fundamental value of a Christian is that we come to Jesus and die to ourselves for his glory and the good of everyone around us. We aim to disappear that others' goods will be advanced. One of the most profound questions in the Bibles in Genesis 3 where Cain kills Abel and he's asked where his brother is and you know what his answer is? His answer is a question. Am I my brother's keeper? He expected the answer to that question will be, well, of course you're not. You know what the answer to that question was? Yes, you are. You should be looking out for those around you. You do have an obligation to the people around you, especially here in this context, on what other people think about God, the Bible, the gospel, theology, and how you live, where they may imitate us and stumble, go astray. Where something they would learn or see in another believer actually causes them to derail in their faith, to think wrongly about their faith, not to follow more closely, more, can we say it, conservatively, more biblically after the Lord himself. Are you mindful of your influence? Now, be careful. I know what some of you are thinking. Well, I, I don't have much influence. Not a lot of people around me. I, I, I beg to differ. You are all, we are all influencers. Someone is always watching. They're listening. How seriously do you take the Lord and his word? How, how seriously do you take the truthfulness, the inerrancy, the inspiration, the infallibility of, of the Bible? Are you a part-time 
Christian where others could see that and become part-time in their faith and stumble? Jesus said it'd be better to be drowned, better off dead than to influence someone else in a negative way regarding God. Can I turn the screw just a little bit tighter? Wow, is there an application in this passage for us as parents? Our kids are watching. Your God will be their God. Your understanding of the gospel will be their first taste of gospel truth. The way you forgive, the way they'll forgive. The way you respond, the way they respond. The way that you control your temper, the way they will control your temper. I love, my father's gone from this world, but I loved my dad so much. He was a dear friend to me, not just my dad. But there were a lot of things about my dad I remember thinking, someday when I'm king, (laughs) someday when I'm dad, ain't gonna be like that. And then I became a dad. And I would say things, and it's almost like the world slowed down in slow motion. I could see and hear words coming out and say, that was Larry Holland. He was gracious, and we forgave each other for many things over the years. But as a parent, as a parent, are we doing anything to cause our kids, little ones, who are growing up understanding theological truth, understanding how serious you and I are by our examples and by our following. What are we teaching them? Are we in any way causing them to stumble? And if you want to know what that might look look like, we'll find that out in our second realm. As Jesus calls believers to radical commitment in in him. The first realm is with others, those who are believers who might be influenced by our example or our teaching. Secondly, self. This is a realm that we need to be radical in our commitment for, self. <clears throat> now, I gotta tell you, these next few verses are some of the most full stop verses in the Bible. When you hear this, you stop and you say, really, did he really say that? And not only that, you read this and you say, is he being literal? And the answer to that, as we'll prove, is no, he is not being literal, but frankly, the literal might be more easier than the the metaphorical. He starts in verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, we move from causing others to stumble who believe. Now you, if your own hand, the one on the end of your wrist, causes you to stumble, Jesus says, cut it off. And then an unbelievable statement. It is better for you to enter life crippled with one hand than having your two hands and go to hell into the unquenchable fire. Again, notice the idea of stumbling. It's actually the word means to trip, to to fall over an obstacle. There's a shift in these next few verses from endangering the faith of another to endangering yourself, endangering your own faith, not looking after your own soul, being careless or carefree or sloppy or negligent about your own soul. That's the point here. The danger's real. Jesus says heaven and hell are at stake in how radically we fight against sin. True, genuine believers fight sin. They don't conquer it completely, but they fight it. They don't love it all the time, they hate it. False professors, false Christians, unsaved believers, did you hear that term? People who believe the truth about the gospel but have never committed their life to Christ, James calls them unsaved believers. Their faith is genuine, it seems, but their faith has no works. Therefore, it is what? Dead. False professors do not take sin seriously. In each of these three examples that Jesus is going to lay out, it challenges us to make a valuative decision. 
He says, if your hand makes you stumble, cut it off. If your foot makes you stumble, cut it off. If your eye makes you stumble, pluck it out. He's saying, make a valuative statement, a valuative, um, an evaluation of these decisions, whether I'm going to keep a hand, a foot, an eye, I'm going to keep that, or I'm going to sacrifice that, go to heaven rather than hell. He's saying, make an evaluation here. It's an appeal to a reality greater than the experience in front of us. Let me give you a way to think about this. If you offer a small child, I would encourage all of you to go serve in the nursery and in the, in the children's department, like how I got that in there. It was. If you offer a small child, let's say a four-year-old, the choice between a shiny, bright, beautiful, weighted quarter worth 25 cents or an old, tattered, torn dollar bill, it's almost certain that the child will choose the quarter. Why? Because he does not understand that there is greater value in what looks immediately most unattractive. There's no maturity to make an evaluative decision about these two choices. That's exactly what Jesus is laying out here. Are you going to keep that which causes you to stumble or sacrifice that so you go to heaven? Said another way, so you won't go to hell. Understanding and faithfulness as a disciple of Jesus requires deep, considerable, comparative heart work. We're stopping and saying, do I, do I really understand what this choice means today, tomorrow, next week, next year, in eternity? Do I really understand what this choice means for, for my own spiritual health? Now, the Lord uses three metaphors here, hands, eyes, and feet. It's not difficult to see that these relate to what we view, what we do, and where we go. He could have used anything, but he pulls these three out, isolating what we look at, what we view, what we do with our hands, and where we go with our feet. Look at verse 43. The illustration here is about what we do, our hands. If your hand makes you stumble, stop. If your own hand makes you stumble. He's not specifically talking about your physical hand. How do we know that? If you cut your hand off, you still have another one to sin with. He's using this as an illustration to say whatever it is in your life that enables you to do things that dishonor Christ, that make you stumble, that get in your own way, that cause you to trip up in your own pursuit of holiness and Christ-likeness. Whatever that is, go to radical extremes to cut it off, likening to cutting off your own hand. This is about how a follower of Jesus lives on purpose, intentionally and thoughtfully. We've quoted John Owen before, and we've looked at this, this quote before, but I, I, wanna, I wanna come back to it again. Oh, this is so helpful. Mr. Owen writes, labor, stress, work hard. Labor to know yourself, know your own frame and your temper. Now stop right there. These are old English. He doesn't say your anger temper. He just means your disposition, the way you think. Labor to know your own frame and temper, what spirit you are of, what, what kind of person you are, what your, what your temptations are. What associates in your heart Satan has. Stop right there. What a great picture. What a frightening picture. Satan has associates in your heart. And they're not the same associates as in the person's heart next to you or my heart. What does it mean to have an associate in your heart? Satan knows the strings he can pull in each one of our hearts to make us most susceptible to temptation. What associates in your heart Satan has? Where corruption is strong? Where are you weak in your corrupting influences? Where grace is weak? Where's your theology need to be built up? What stronghold lust has in your natural constitution and the like? What is he saying? You need to know whether it's your hand, your foot, or your eye, what are your weaknesses that must be sacrificed for greater pursuit of Christ? 
all of us have something that makes us stumble. Think about that. And the enemy of your soul knows exactly what those are. I, I, we don't have time for a full Satanology or demonology right now, but you ever thought about the facts that, that the demons and Satan, they, they don't die? They don't sleep? They have been watching how temptation works for thousands of years and become experts. No, the devil and his demons cannot make you sin, but they can sure put what in, put in front of you what would tempt you the most because they know what associates are in your heart that they can woo. The question here is this. What are you doing? What are you doing that positions you closer to sin than obedience? Now, a quick note about uh, verse 44 and 46. You'll find the phrase in verse 44 and in verse 46, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched uh, from Isaiah. But... Verse 44 and verse 46 might have brackets in your Bible. I'm going to give you a little head start on where we're going to be in Mark 16. These brackets mean in the earliest and in the best manuscripts that we have that we translated uh, as the Gospel of Mark, those phrases, those verses weren't there. You say, then why are they in my Bible? It's pretty simple. What happened was that a copier would copy and copy and copy. This would be happening in, in, in different parts of the ancient Near East. And someone probably duplicated or doubled this. And what happened is once it got in and was copied and copied and copied, they were so wonderfully reverent about God's word, no one wanted to take it out. But we have earlier manuscripts and better manuscripts where verse 44 and verse 46 are not in there, so we know they're probably not original. But that phrase is down in the passage further so we can pick it up in just a few minutes. Does that make sense? Uh, it's called textual criticism, and we'll be talking a lot about that when we get to the end of Mark because the way that uh, Mark ends has a whole paragraph that's not in the earliest and in the best manuscripts that we've, we have to translate. So just hold that for a few months, okay? But verse 48 repeats exactly what these say, so there's nothing lost in, in applying that to these verses. Uh, the repetitive verses are not in the oldest, they're not in the best, so... You can just look down at verse 48 and apply that all the way around. One of the things that's interesting about textual criticism is once something snuck in, there was such a reverence, it was really hard to get it out. And uh, there's some places in John, the writing in the sand, that are just in the same way. So anyway, verse 45, he moves from the hand, what you're doing, to the foot, where you go. If your foot, your own foot, your own foot below your ankle causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame, limping, on a crutch, having your, than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Do you see what these two things said? Eternity is at stake in how serious we are about fighting sin, not whether we become perfect, not whether we, in a Wesleyan sense, can kind of uh, uh, mature our way into a place where we don't ever sin again. That's never gonna be the case. There's a real sense in which I think I fight some of the big sins that I, that I was fighting as a believer when I first got saved. I think I'm fighting them less now than I was 40 plus years ago. But I find that the longer I grow as a Christian, I am seeing crevices and cracks, little corners in my own heart. I'm seeing, uh, I like what Piper calls it, species of sin in my heart that I never saw before. And that's gonna be the case the longer and the deeper that we grow. However, there is a fighting of sin that all of us should be able to point to, to feel the battle to hate the sin we love, to love the God who hates sin. He goes to the feet. This is where you go. What we do when we're there, how we represent Christ, it's vital. Again, the consequences are profound and eternal. I want to give you an illustration that, was, that, that I hope resonates with you. I, I remember talking to a man who was losing the battle with alcohol. Called himself an alcoholic. 
was very difficult for him to, to stop drinking. I remember him telling me specifically how hard it was not to buy liquor. So I began to ask him, well, what do you mean how hard it is? I mean, when do you buy it? Where do you buy it? How is this happening? After we talked about his temptation, it became clear how foolish he was and how he wasn't applying cutting off his feet metaphorically here. He was stopping at the liquor store, parking in the parking lot of the liquor store, walking in to the liquor store building, finding his way to the aisle where his favorite drink was. The bottles were there, shining and beautiful with perfect lighting on them. This was his description. And staring at these bottles, he tried to say no to temptation. What should he have done? Don't go in the parking lot. Go 10 miles away to go around it. Don't go near it. That's what Jesus is talking about here. You cut off your foot. You give no, zero license, zero leash to your own flesh. You protect yourself from yourself. The question should always be, how far can I stay away from sin that tempts me? How holy can I be? Now, frankly, the hands and the feet are easier in a sense than verse 47. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw, literally pluck, pull, grab and yank out your eye and throw it out. <laughs> Wouldn't it be enough to have it out? But you gotta throw it as well. Shows you how this is a metaphor. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Listen, friends, do you understand that the eye is the gateway to your soul? Now, Jesus taught this cutting off uh, your hand, your feet, your eyes, several places in his ministry. It was one of those, those favorite metaphors he would use. He comes back to it several times. He used it very early on, probably at this point, two years plus ago in Capernaum at the Sermon on the Mount. Let me tell you what he said about it then. And this gets really to the heart. We understand exactly what Jesus meant. Mark doesn't record the full uh, um, explanation now because they had already had it, the disciples had, for two years plus following Jesus around. Matthew 5, verse 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Good enough, easy enough, right? But I say to you, now stop right there. Imagine, put yourself in their sandals for a minute, okay? You've heard it said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, is he going to say it's okay to commit adultery? What is he, how do you footnote that? But I say to you, everyone who looks eyes at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it far from you. Same thing, for it is better for you to lose one of the body parts than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the body, your body parts than for your whole body to go into hell. Now we find out a little bit more about what Jesus was, was saying and intending here. He's not talking about the external acts. He's talking about the inside of the heart. And here specifically, he's talking about the eye gate and what influence Satan and the world can have on us by what comes to our eyes, through our eyes, in our eyes. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's metaphorical language. Not to be taken literally, though some in church history have. My wife and I actually know a man from many years ago in our, our, our past. We know a man who took this seriously. And I don't know how he didn't kill himself, but he shot his eyes out. That's not what this is talking about. But the point is strong. Jesus says, pull it out. 
throw it far from you, which shows you how it's metaphorical because pulling it out would accomplish what you needed to accomplish so it wouldn't work anymore. Throw it far from you. What he's doing is saying, what is there that comes into your eye gates? What are you looking at? What are you watching? What are you gazing at that is causing your heart to lean hard towards sin? I wrote this next paragraph down in my notes. And I remember pushing back from the computer. I was at Starbucks and going, I'm a little nervous about reading this paragraph because I know what some people are gonna think and what some people are gonna say. That Holland is such a legalist. He has no appreciation of the arts. He is such a fuddy dad and a a non-cultural. I understand that, but let me ask you this. Guarding your eyes, do you understand that that applies to the movies you watch? The television shows that you allow into your eye gate Print media, the internet, your phone, your tablet, streaming services, HBO or Showtime. I can't imagine any Christian's need for those two channels. I just can't, I don't have a category for that. The TV in your hotel room when you're traveling. Gazing at someone with sexual fantasies and on and on, that's exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5. Are you allowing temptation and stimulating, titillating things to come into your mind through your eyes that cause your mind to go places that God would forbid, would displease him? How radical are you willing to be to keep your eye gates guarded? Listen, I've just kind of, I'm getting old enough where I have a really good case of I don't care sometimes. I don't understand how some people can go, who claim Christ can go see certain movies where it explicitly says nudity, extreme violence, And they usually say this, oh, it doesn't bother me, but it killed Jesus. I can, are we being entertained by things for which our Savior died? It's a hard question. It's pretty countercultural, isn't it? Are you willing to walk out of a room, walk out of a movie theater, walk away from a, a beach, do something when your eyes go to places where Jesus says you will be as guilty of adultery by the thoughts that are entertained by what came into your eyes as you are by actually doing that adulterous act. Are you willing to protect yourselves and cut off that access? Cut off that access to your heart. It's just inviting Satan into our minds and saying, do what you want. Help me think what you want. And somehow we think it's legalistic to say that that's a bad idea. Can I remind you that legalism is trying to be saved by works, not trying to be sanctified by holy aspirations? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Then he quotes in verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Isaiah 66, 24, they will go out They will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. This is the final judgment of God Almighty. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. And they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. The idea here is not literal worms and literal flames as much as it is they don't die and they're not quenched. There's no appeal. There's no end. There's no second chance. Suffering without relief. You know, I don't, I don't believe I, I don't believe we think enough or talk enough or pray about enough the, the realities of heaven and, and hell. I remember hearing a, 
an interview with R.C. Sproul who said, if any man would give one moment, one minute, 60 seconds thought to the reality of hell, he would go mad in a moment or he would run to the streets to evangelize and keep people from going there. The point of these three illustrations is to ask, are we serious about our sanctification, about our walk with Christ? It's not a part-time. It's not just what we do on Sunday. Jesus calls for all-out, all-in commitment. Romans 8, 13, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Titus 2, 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, godly in this present age. Colossians 3, 5, consider the members, the parts of your earthly body dead to immorality, dead to impurity, dead to passion, dead to evil desire, dead to greed, which all amounts to idolatry, and in 1 Peter 2, 11, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers of this world, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your own soul. In his book from 1995, Future Grace, John Piper recounts this amazing story. I have read it often. Piper writes, on July 20th, 1993, Donald Wyman was clearing land near Puxatani. Pennsylvania as a part of his work for a mining company. In the process, a tree rolled onto his shin, causing a severe break and pinning Wyman to the ground. He cried for help for over an hour, but no one came. And then he concluded that the only way to save his life would be to cut off his own leg. So he made a tourniquet out of his shoestring and tightened it with a wrench. He then took out his pocket knife cut through the skin, the muscle, and the bone just below the knee and freed himself from the tree. He then crawled 30 yards to a bulldozer, drove it a quarter mile to his truck, then maneuvered the standard transmission with his good leg and his hand until he reached a farmer's house one and a half miles away with his leg bleeding profusely. Farmer John Huber Jr. helped him to get to a hospital where... His life was spared. That's the picture Jesus is painting here. How radical are you, am I, in our fight against selfish sin that we would be willing to get rid of and do anything for him because he is infinitely better and satisfying? Do you not know, Paul told the Corinthians, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You have from God that you are not your own. And then this famous passage, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Others, the radical consequence for endangering another's faith. Self, the radical extent for protecting one's own faith. And in the third realm, where we are to call, called to have radical commitment is the world. The world. The radical expectation for maintaining faith in Christ. Verse 49 and 50. Now, before we do verse 49 and 50, I, I just want to tell you, and, and, and uh, I don't get to say this often, how humbled I am as an expositor, as a preacher, as a studier. This is a hard two verses. And when I find hard verses, I translate them, I, I work on them, I make notes on observations, pages of stuff, and then I usually go to the commentaries for help. <laughs> I found very little help this week. I mean, there were more ideas about what these two verses mean than I could list in the rest of the afternoon. For everyone, let's break it down. For everyone will be salted with fire. What does that mean? I think the best way to understand this is to see fire and salt as symbols of trials. 
but they are also words associated with sacrifices in the temple. And those go right together with us as living sacrifices in our lives. I think it means trials, persecutions, the cost of discipleship. That's the context Mark is writing about, which makes sense that that's why he would end this passage with this. It has to be talking about the cost of discipleship. It has to be talking about the persecution and the the high payment we would pay for our holiness and because of the greatness of our Lord and Savior Jesus. This is how we engage the world as Christians. And followers of Christ, we are always under scrutiny. Now, as we've been studying for the past few weeks, Jesus is describing over and over how discipleship, how the following of Jesus by a believer lays total claim to a person's life, right? He's the point of our life, not a part of our lives. Christianity is discipleship. It is a all or nothing proposition. You you can't sing the song that was popular in the 70s when I was in high school. Jesus is just all right with me. No, he's the Lord and master of your life the all-consuming master of our lives. Not as a wicked or a mean overlord, but one who gives us all we desire, all we need, all we want, everything we could ever imagine that would bring us pleasure is found in Christ. And if we don't taste it now, it is a foretaste of glory divine where we will for all eternity. Don't pick the quarter. Pick the tattered dollar bill. It's real. This is the language of a pleasing sacrifice to God and also a painful necessity to be a follower of Jesus. Salted, flavored with fire. That's the dross of the the, the, um, fire that burns off the dross. It helps us to become more like Christ. Remember, Peter is probably Mark's source. He said this, 1 Peter 1, 7. The proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. And that word tested actually can mean trials, trialed by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. In other words, what he's doing with us and on us now will make sense then and will be for our good and will pay off in all eternity. Then in chapter four, Peter says, Beloved, this is almost, it's not humorous, but it's a shock. Don't be surprised, Peter says, this is 1 Peter 4, 12. Don't be surprised at the fiery, same word, ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your trials and testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, this is not outside of our our realm of expectation. This is what we expect as Christians. There's gonna be trials and persecutions and difficulties because God is carving off in every one of those parts of us so that we see parts of him shining more radiantly. Then verse 50, salt, that flavoring nature of this fiery persecution that God will use to bring us to greater conformity to his son is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I think this is as simple as understanding your role and part in God with God as he adds preservation and a taste of himself and his good news in us, for us, with us, by us, by how we care for others' spiritual health, the way we care for our own holiness, the way we represent Christ to a lost and dying world. What would, what would it mean that salt becomes unsalty? This is the frightening reality. When God brings things into our life to make us more like him and we don't respond right, you better have salt or the check in yourselves. And then the strange ending, be at peace with all men. What is that? Be at peace with all men. Romans 12, 18, insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Where do we start here? Not causing another to stumble, 
this peace means we have that refreshing saltiness, good influence, theological instruction, a good example with the people around us, especially the believers who are around us and God intends to be shepherded in their worldview by us. Jesus and Paul are careful to admonish us to be peacemakers as we are experiencing trials and difficulty and God is salting his, the tastefulness of the gospel through us. It's a gracious demonstration to the world that Jesus is infinitely valuable and precious to our souls and to our relationships. This is, sounds so negative. This is not all the bad news. It's the quarter and the dollar. What are we choosing in short-term pleasure that is causing us to sacrifice long-term glory? Are you radical in your following demands of discipleship? In following the demands of discipleship? Is Jesus a part of your life or the point of your life? Are you aggressive in what you're doing? where you're going, what you're seeing. And after a few verses like this, we have to stop and ask, have you committed your life to the one who is worth this kind of sacrifice? Can I just tell you, as someone who has walked with Jesus for four decades, he's worth it. He is completely worth every and any sacrifice. And you know what's sweet? What, what one of our favorite parts about the Lord is, is when we don't do it, he's a forgiving savior. He's a loving savior. He's a compassionate savior. He was tempted in the way we were without sin, but he comes to the aid of those who need his help, the writer of the Hebrews says. Boy, I, I just wanna beg you. If you don't know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you will never find the happiness you're seeking without him. How can you be happy with this kind of sacrifice? Because he, he is the prize. We're following him. If you have questions about that, we would love to talk to you about that at the end of the service. Let me pray.